This is Real Estate Rookie episode 279er. It was definitely a process like absorbing all those losses and just the mental hit it takes on you. That hit basically, I've just summed it up into a 250K education that I didn't know I was gonna want, you know? Failure is a part of learning, right? So it'll be a cool story to tell my kids one day when I've built a cool company. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And boy, oh boy, do we have an episode for you guys today. Um, it's not often that we hear stories um, that uh, get off to such a rough start, but yet have such a such a happy ending, wouldn't you say, Ash? Yeah, yeah. So... We are going to go through, it's about five or six different ways that an investor failed at, you know, doing his house flips, his projects. And then we have brought on his actual mentor who helped him do his most recent one and how it became a, a success because of this mentorship. So they go through, I think there's like six components of this that we actually talk about, you know, financing piece, the timeline piece of the rehab, these six things we go through and to what was, so we have JP on, and what was JP doing in, um, you know, when he first started all by himself trying to figure it out compared to when he had Aaron's, um, you know, mentorship to guide him through the last one. And, you know, Aaron, pretty amazing. He's done over 140 deals, he says. And JP, rookie investor, started in 2020 doing his research, did a house hack, and then started to get into house flips where he made mistakes just like all of us do. And wait until you hear the amount of debt that this put him into these mistakes. And he, you know, super inspiring person JP is. He tells us, you know, he, that that was his cost. That was his college, you know. <laughs> that was what he had to pay to learn to become a real estate investor. Yeah, so we, we cover, like Ashley said, we cover timeline, contractors, budget, carrying costs, financing, and then uh, finally taking that property to market. And and JP, who's the mentee here, talked about what he learned from Aaron to, to make this last deal successful. So lots of really good nuggets throughout this entire episode. All right. So before we get into the conversation, I just want to give a quick shout out to someone by the username of Mrs. Placid Chaos. Uh, Placid Chaos left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and says, best podcast to get the info you need. Real estate investing is something I've wanted to invest in for several years now, but I've been intimidated by the thought that I couldn't financially make it happen. But this podcast has showed me so many different avenues that can be taken, and I'm confident I'll have that first property by the end of the year. So... Uh, Plastic Chaos, we we hope that you do get that first deal. When you do, apply to be on the show because we'd love to have you. And for all of our rookies that are listening, if you haven't yet, please do leave us an honest rating review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, the more folks we can reach, the more folks we can reach, more folks we can help. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. 
Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. If you're in the landlord game, you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where Rent Ready steps in. Now, Rent Ready's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. So say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with Rent Ready. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. Now, if you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for just $1. You can't beat that. So visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor to get six months of Rent Ready for $1. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Okay, you guys, let's bring in JP and Aaron. To kind of start off the show, we have three questions that we want to ask each of you guys. Uh, So JP, maybe you want to go first on this one. But uh, the first question is, how long have you been investing in real estate? When did you get started? Yeah, I got started in 2020. Uh, Basically learned a ton about... uh, just real estate investing through Bigger Pockets. Um, a member from my church like just mentioned it. I don't know if I ever talked to him again after that, but uh, <laughs> I just got into a rabbit hole and was in college and realized, okay, this is definitely something I'd be passionate about and want to do. So I learned a ton and then ended up buying my mom's house after I graduated college and uh, turned it into a house hack. Okay, and I'm sure we're definitely going to get more into that uh, later on, but how many deals have you done so far since you started learning about real estate in 2020? So I've total the project I'm doing right now with Aaron will be my sixth project. Wow, that's great. In just three years. Um, okay, and then the last question, what is your number one piece of advice for anyone getting into real estate? I'd say don't over leverage and uh, you can basically learn by like school of hard knocks or learn from someone else's mistakes. So after my experience, I definitely learned from somebody else's mistakes and either pay the cost with money or um, just making a relationship and try to go that route. Okay, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Aaron, uh, the same set of questions. So the first one, how long have you been investing in real estate? Yeah, so I've been investing um, probably like five years. And then so... I'm based in San Antonio. Before I was investing, I worked for an oil and gas company in like a corporate environment. And then I think in probably like 2017, 18, I started like binging bigger pockets like everyone else in the world. Um, and then eventually made that jump and thought I was prepared. And I did the agent thing for a while. Um, then I started working with a broker who mainly worked with investors and you know buying off-market properties. So um, learned from him, worked with him for 
um, a while, did three or four deals there and was kind of like, hey, I, I think I can figure this out on my own. So then started my own company, buying houses direct to seller end of 19 and then had been doing that um, about four years now. So wholesaling, fix and flip rentals, kind of a little bit of everything. Just one follow-up question on that. So you, you said that you you worked with this investor. Were you were you like an employee of his, and he had a company, or were you were you just kind of working as like a a helping hand? Can you just outline that relationship a bit for us? So he was a broker. Um, I got my license, and then so the way it was set up is you know we on off market deals we got a split. We got a split if we bought the deal, and we got a split if we sold the deal. Um, and then he took half, and then. It was just kind of a conventional split, like a normal like brokerage or real estate team on traditional like retail transactions. Um, but we did that for a while, and then after each deal got a little bigger, and I was giving away <laughs> half, I'm like, I think I can figure this out on my own. So then I eventually, um, you know, learned a learned a ton from him, but then kind of broke off after that to you know start my own company, do my own thing. So Aaron, do you even know off the top of your head how many deals you have done over the past five years? So somewhere in the range of like. 140 150 i think that's super cool i have a business partner now and we did like 60 something last year um 40 something the year before that and then um yeah so 100 plus i don't it's not something i keep track of honestly um but it's you know it's it's definitely something we've we've gradually um gradually grown over the years and you know we're continuing to look into scale and it's a lot of fun okay awesome uh, and the last question, what is your number one piece of advice for anyone getting into real estate? So my number one piece of advice would just be like, get that first deal done. Because the first rental I bought, like I bought it with friends because I like didn't want the risk. And then we like analyzed these like rentals forever. Like we probably looked at like a hundred deals before we bought one. But then it's like that first one's just like a stepping stone and it makes the next one easier and the next one easier. And then it's like, you know, we do things now that like years ago when I thought of like, buying in towns we've never been in or sight unseen or all these things. But like it all builds on that, like that first one and the first like getting your feet wet and jumping in, it all gets easier after that. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. And that I think you guys both gave really great advice and I'm sure as we continue through the show, there's going to be a lot more takeaways for everyone listening. So let's kind of get into it more. And Aaron, let's start with you as to what was your biggest mistake in real estate so far? And once that mistake was made, what did you do about it? Yeah, good question. Um, and I've made a lot of those, especially like <laughs> this last year's the markets turned. We've had we've had a lot of properties we've lost money on. Um, but the one that that I think of is um, it was in 2020, one of the first houses I I bought, and um, it was from this family, and they own they pretty much owned like half the street. Um, they, at one point had owned almost all of it and they, you know, eventually sold off a few houses. I was buying this house. My plan from day one was like remodel it to live in for myself. Um, somewhere in the middle of that, I, I hired this contractor who, you know, wasn't paying his employees. And I gave him four houses to work on at the same time. Projects don't get done. He runs off with money. I have houses that are vandalized because his workers aren't getting paid. And then ultimately, like I, I sold that house for a loss. Um, which was fine, but to me, the the reason I hate it and you know see it as my biggest mistake is like I felt like I made a promise to this family, to the family that like lived on that street, like hey, I'm gonna be your neighbor, and my like full intention is like to remodel this and move in, and I just felt like I let them down, and like the integrity piece of that like hurts me more than like the twenty thirty grand I lost on it, just because you know 
you know, I met with the daughter, I met with the mom, they like really connected with them well. And then I'm like, I feel like I let you down. And they were, they were understanding, but like, it still hurts me a little bit. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, we, we talk about mistakes, but honestly, like you said, those mistakes are stepping stones towards something bigger because there's so many lessons that you learned throughout that process that I'm sure have set you up to, you know, now be the guy that does, you know, 50, 60 deals in a year. Um, but it, it's not without those mistakes that, that kind of help get you to that point. Um, so, I, you know, I, I really want to obviously dive into the relationship between the the two of you, because um, I think there's a lot of a lot of good things uncovered there. So, Aaron, if you wouldn't mind, just just walk us through um, how you and JP first got connected. Me and my business partner, we flip and remodel a lot of mobile homes, mobile homes on land. It's kind of a niche we're in. Um, and then we... Last fall, it was it was hard to sell deals. The market's kind of crazy. Um, so we kind of just had this idea of like, what if we gave someone the opportunity of like, hey, we wholesale on the deal, but like we walk them through the process. Like we let you use our contractors. We help you come up with your scope of work. We provide you a, an agent who will list the house for you. Um, you know, as part of that, you know, we're making an assignment fee. Like it's not a secret, but, you know, we're going to try to help someone get a flip done like how it should be. Cause you know, we've kind of over the years gotten really good at that. So, um, I just threw out a post on Instagram and had a lot of people reach out. And then, um, JP reached out and we kind of, I kind of knew, we kind of knew each other through some connections and stuff. And then he was honestly the first person to reach out, but then I hopped on the phone with them and you know, he started telling me the story with, you know, Hey, I've done some flips in the past. It didn't go well. Um, but I, I guess at this point I'll hand that over to JP and let him dive into some of that. But um, yeah, that's kind of how that got started. And, you know, um, we just went from there. Yeah. JP, can you even just start us from the very beginning of like, when you saw that post and reach out, did you kind of have some fear? Were you excited? And what did you say to Aaron? Yeah. So uh, whenever I saw that post, I was like, oh, this guy's doing a lot of deals. He's in San Antonio. Okay, cool. Like he definitely like knows what he's doing. And, uh, I'd lost a lot of money doing flips myself and was like, for this year, I really wanted to, I'm rebuilding and wanted to get a successful project just for like personal confidence and then also like rebuilding a track record and such. So whenever I talked to him, I was t- letting him know about the previous experiences and brought up some of the problems that happened. And uh, he just was basically like confident in telling me that we'd be able to work through those and that this project would basically be like a, hand-holding experience and uh yeah so he presented the opportunity and it was making sense to me so I was nervous but also it was like okay I'm trusting that he knows what he's doing and I wanted to go through with it so JP why did you want to keep going you had had these failures what was your goal what was your why what was the reasoning that kept you motivated to keep trying yeah so I graduated college with like a mechanical engineering degree and worked in the corporate world for a year and a half and I was just new like okay after multiple internships in college this like corporate life isn't for me and uh, it was just the entire time I was at that company looking for a way out and I had begun working on these projects at the start of that and then uh, basically like all of that was rooted in wanting to build financial success because of I grew up with a single mom and she always made like 30K and got child support and stuff and we were just living paycheck to paycheck. 
So growing up with that, once I was in high school, I realized like, oh, okay, this is like my family. This is my mom's situation. And I felt like I was always trying to help her budget and help her like, hey, like think bigger, like let's do some more. And um, once I got into college, that was just like, okay, I want to learn a whole lot about self-development, real estate, financials and stuff. So I joined investment clubs and was always trying to find a side hustle and started a lawn company and things like that. And uh, I just had that deeper why of, okay, I want to be able to like provide for my family and eventually like provide for my mom because she provided for us growing up. So JP, I, I just want to, I'm, I'm just curious, right? Because uh, very similar situation, right? Like I, I went to school initially to college to, to be an engineer and I had a, a you know, a, an internship paid super well. And same thing, like it was through that internship that I realized that I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, but, but also similar backgrounds in that, you know, my, my mom was never a high income earner growing up either. Um, and I, I had this idea of like, I really want a stable career so that I can provide for myself, provide for my family. And that's what engineering gives you. It's a very steady income. Um, so if you're, if that was your goal, um, why not just be an engineer? Cause that would give you that financial stability. Like what, what was it that made you say like the entrepreneurial route maybe solves that problem more? Yeah, for me, it was just like, I appreciated the security of it and that stable income where it was like, I was making 55 K a year and right out of college. And it was just like, okay, I'm worth so much more than this. And like the guys that were ahead of me, it was okay. I'm really going to devote three years of my life to get where those guys are at. And I'm not even like happy with if I was making that right now. So it was just not enough for me basically. And the security was great, but it was just me having an entrepreneurial mindset. I was like, okay, I'd rather get paid for the work that I put in. And if I work harder, I want to get paid more and I want to eventually like grow a company and have a successful business and want to be able to like just reap the rewards of my own work. So I think that's really great. Um, just listening to you give your reason, your why, your goal. I hope that's motivating you guys listening as to, you know, dig deep and find that reasoning why what's going to motivate you and drive you so uh, jp you've had that moment where you know you have your why you're getting into real estate let's talk about that first deal as to what happened with that deal um it was your your house hack when you bought your mom's property let's dive into that a little bit more yeah so that one uh was basically like me coming out of this like bigger pockets rabbit hole of just ton of learning and wanting to get my feet wet, wanting to do something. So uh, I realized I was going to get a W-2 income when I graduated college and I was able to be bankable. So I talked to my mom about buying her house from her and then she would get a decent cash out. And it made sense for me because I was looking for my first deal and I was like, oh, I could just rent out the bedrooms. So I basically spent the like next few months remodeling the house, came to an agreement with my mom and ended up buying it from her and then uh, rented out the other two bedrooms. And once that one was finished, I think I was had two rented bedrooms. They were paying a, most of the mortgage. And then uh, I think I had like 30K in my bank account and I kind of used that to get into flipping. So. I just want to make sure I'm understanding the the setup here. So your your mom owned the property. You then bought that house from her, and you turned it into a house hack for yourself. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. 
That's pretty cool, man. I don't think I've ever, I don't think we've had anyone on the podcast yet that like bought that their parents' house and used that as their, their kind of stepping stone. Um, I mean, so it sounds like that deal turned out relatively well for you, JP. So, I mean, like as a, as a first deal, that one seemed like a, a solid base hit. Yeah, definitely. It was like a remodeled property that didn't have too many problems because I'd fixed most of them. And then uh, I was able to rent out the rooms and, I was kind of hesitant at like, okay, this is the house I grew up in. Do I really want to like live here for much longer? But to me, it was a stepping stone and I was like, okay, this is going to be my first deal and I'm going to scale from here. So I'm comfortable being here for a little while longer. So you had some confidence built up after that first deal and that's what kind of propelled you to move quickly into the next one. So, you know, just give us a quick rundown of of after that successful house hack, what what happens from there? Yeah, from there, uh, I was basically like, I had the mindset of like, I could do anything and I wanted to uh, like go into flipping and I had a lot of confidence. I had just done like a successful deal. So I had that 30K. So then I went in, um, borrowed money from like a f- guy that I met in college and then a couple other people. And basically that was all private money and about 130K or so. And then I had 30K and I got a business partner that I met through a community group and we were like, okay, I raised this money. My business partner was making a lot more money than me and had some projects going. So we basically used everything I raised and the cash that we had on hand to get into flipping. And after like a month or so of raising that money, we basically went really big and bought like three houses over like the course of a month. And they were all from New Western Acquisitions, which is a like large wholesaling company out here. And uh, that was like three projects that I was doing all at once. Okay. So before we like dive into any more of your actual deals, I want to bring Aaron into here and hear Aaron's point of view as when you're having these initial discussions with JP, learning about his things right off the top of your head or as you're learning from him, where are the things that you saw there was opportunity for JP to pivot or to grow or to change, uh, you know, maybe things that he you saw automatically that as a rookie investor should be doing it differently. So what's your kind of insight on that initial overview of how JP was operating his flips? Honestly, I don't, a lot of these details are kind of new to me. You know, I know that he had some that went bad, uh, I didn't know the extent of that, um, honestly. And then, but my biggest thing is like just the level of the project. Like he was jumping into like, hey, let's do a historic house with with an addition and like let's completely like fix the foundation and rewire it and like crazy rehabs that like I completely stay away from. Um, so the biggest thing that, you know, I would, someone knew it's like, it doesn't have to be crazy margins, but it's like, get something that's comfortable, like something more cosmetic, something that's your, you're not completely tearing a house apart, um, which is what I focus on personally. Um, so I think that's one big thing of that. And then, I mean, he jumped into so much at, at once. So as an engineer, he was overcomplicating things when it could have been simpler. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Hey, maybe a little bit, but uh, <laughs> the, I mean, he was buying in really, uh, really high price points too. Like, you know, big, big projects, big numbers, but, you know, really high price points for, for San Antonio. Um, and then, you know, one thing that we, as the you know project progressed that we've, um, we had a lot of conversations on was more like value engineering type stuff of like, cool, like 
where you can you put your money that's going to bring you the most, like increase the value the most, not um, necessarily like, hey, let's get the nicest granite in the world, but like, cool, we can probably save this door and save $1,000 or, you know, we can do some other things like that to really maximize, you know, what the end product's going to be without spending a ton of money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is like, you know, don't bite off more than you can chew, but then, you know, um, it's, it's really easy to over rehab a house and make it look like HGTV. Um, but it's like the, the goal is, you know, finding that balance of like, how do you rehab it to get the most value out of it? And I think that's one thing that I initially saw and that we kind of brought to the table too. Yeah. And, and JP, you know, I guess you, you said this, Aaron, but like biting off more than you can chew. And I, I think that's a, a very common thing, especially if that first deal was successful. You're like, oh, man, I, I know what I'm doing. I got this figured out. Um, so what do you what do you feel are maybe some some things that went wrong that, that got your projects off track? And you can just kind of rattle them off really quickly and we can go into detail uh, in a bit here. But just like big picture, what are some things you feel that, that went wrong? Yeah. So to like summarize the whole thing, those three flips uh, definitely went wrong uh, right off the bat with like a GC stealing money and giving draws up front and just made like every rookie mistake I could. Definitely did like HGTV style remodels on them when looking back, I definitely would not have done all those things. And then um, doing additions on the properties when looking back, I'm not sure if that really was a value add after how much it costs. And then um, just using a GC up front when I didn't know the remodel and trusting his like thoughts and his numbers and everything was definitely a mistake. And then once I went out and I got my own GC license to run the projects, then I made every mistake I could with subs and trying to choose the cheap guys versus like the middle or expensive guys and paying them up front too. And then a big mistake that I really like didn't like was we were paying subs on a like weekly basis, like payroll almost uh, versus like a completion route. and looking back that costed us a whole lot more money than it would have just doing a fixed cost. Can just really quickly, can you, can you break that down JP? Because uh, again, a lot of our audience, they're, they're rookie, uh, real estate investors. Some have no deals whatsoever. Just break down what you mean on the difference in that, that pay structure and, and why one way is more beneficial to you as the person running the rehab and one is maybe more beneficial to the person doing the actual work. Yeah. So it really comes down to like the person you use and, uh, the guy that quoted me for, a prime example that someone could see would be the drywall on one of the big projects. He quoted me about $10,500. And then we ended up paying like just a few of the workers that were out at the property, uh, like on a weekly basis. And that guy that quoted 10 K 500 said he can knock it out in about three weeks. And that was sheetrocking the whole thing, tape and floating and then texturing it and getting it all ready for paint. And it was a 2,500 square foot house. And then since we paid him on a weekly basis, he was just getting about, I think, 3K a week for him and his three or four guys that he had. And then uh, after the like drywall was complete, it ended up being about like five weeks or so. So we spent like 15K when it should have only been 10K, should have only taken three weeks, but it took five weeks. So moving forward, the way that you would structure that, I guess if you can just kind of give us some, some clarity on the, the better way to structure that. Yeah, so I would have gotten 
three estimates on it and gotten tried to get reference for those contractors maybe gone on google and picked a guy or two from like the people that are paying for ads just to have like I figure those are like quality contractors that have a lot of references, but I'm expecting them to come in at a higher price point, but would still like to see what that number looks like and then try to get reference for two more contractors. And then I would have taken those three quotes and then compared which contractor I felt was willing to put money where their mouth is and start work without taking a ton of money up front and then uh, gave me reasonable timelines that I would have been okay with and I would have chosen that guy. Aaron, can you kind of talk about how you mentored JP through, you know, figuring out the timeline and getting contractors, those two elements right there, what were some of the the big things that you tried to hit home with him so that the next deals could be more successful? Honestly, that's not a piece that we, we did a ton with because we have, we have one main GC now that like I've developed a relationship with over the last like four years where he started doing small stuff for us and then he's built out crews that we now pretty much use them for everything, um, which I wouldn't recommend, but there's there's some key things about this GC that like, the more I look at it, it's, it's very safe. Like we rarely pay him up front. Like he's done a whole house for us without us paying him. Um, he's never like money hungry. Like I've had people like on a course of like a four day tile job ask me for money like five times. Um, those things are always like, I don't know how to find the good ones. I just know how to find the bad ones. Uh, if that makes sense, but it's just something that, you know, I've slowly built a relationship over time. Um, and we have a few different ones we use, um, and we know how they work now, but, um, even with that, like we, we do enough rehabs. We know, we know what things should cost. We have kind of price list for, for stuff. And if he were to go out and find another GC, um, I mean, that would, you know, Hey, this is the house. I'm not looking for the best price. This is kind of what I expect to pay. Can you do it in that? Can you do it in this timeline? That's how I would kind of go about finding new contractors, um, finding someone that's experienced enough to know what things should cost. And then I would go to, like, I wouldn't be finding enough like Craigslist or Facebook. I would try to go to more like reputable suppliers, like, hey, like paint shop who's in here all the time, like connect with that guy, you know, so, some more reputable ways like that. But um, I mean, honestly, we've really lucked out. I mean, but, we have a great GC. Um, if you're in San Antonio, I love you, but I'm not sharing. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we, we've kind of lucked out with that, but it's, you know, it's just built over time and, you know, slowly built a relationship of let's do one house. Okay, let's do two. Let's do more than that. But um, if I was starting over, I would do with some experience, kind of understand what things should cost um, and then kind of shop around for contractors that way. You know, if they only want to be paid in cash, I would stay away. If they want to be paid you know, by the hour or weekly instead of by completion, I'd stay away from them. Um, just some kind of pointers there. But honestly, we're, we're just, we're just real lucky on, on the contractor situation at this point. I think that there's a lot of information out there about hiring a contractor, what the red flags are, how you should structure your contract, things like that. I think it is very, very easy to get excited that you've found the perfect contractor, everything's going to go great, or that you can start the project, this contractor can start now, that you easily let things slide because you just want to jump into this project. So like you mentioned, Aaron, some of those things are, you know, paying them hourly, paying them cash up front, uh, yet even just paying them cash, not even, you know, they want it all under the table, things like that. And providing yourself and the contractor with a clear scope of work 
uh, laying out exactly what's going to be done, putting into the contract the timeline. When, you know, is there going to be some kind of bonus if they finish early? Is there going to be some kind of penalty if they finish late? Uh, What do you do if there's change orders? What's the process? Just detail and write out as much as you can. And that the contractor isn't going to follow these set of rules that you know in your heart and your gut that you should be doing to, you know, align with a contractor. And I say this from my own experience, from not listening to myself and letting things slide. But um, there, there, there are sure ways to protect yourself when you follow kind of these set of rules. Ash, I just want to add one thing to that because you, you said it and I just really want to drive that point home. But um, sometimes we get excited because that contractor can start right away. And sometimes it's it's more expensive to choose the wrong contractor who can start today versus waiting for the right contractor that can start six to eight weeks from now. Because you got you know your your holding costs on a flip is your your private money, your utilities, whatever insurance, and maybe that's a, a few thousand bucks a month. You pick the wrong contractor, just like you said, JP, a job that should have cost you know seven thousand ends up costing fifteen thousand, and you end up spending more by hiring the wrong person. So I, I just that's a super important. point point. And, you know, Aaron, I, I see you, you shaking your head emphatically at, at that point too. Um, yeah, man, just what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, and, and I'll echo what Ashley said. I've made all those mistakes. Like I had a contractor who, you know, like pulled the roof off a house. It rained, all the drywall falls through and I, I don't fire him. And then I like continue this for like months and I'm like, you know, like paying him up front to keep his cell phone on. And it's like, I get like invested in like, supporting them and their family and it's like like none of this makes sense like anyone from an outside view is like why would you do this but i'm like oh like he's gonna get better he's like my project and uh i've made all these mistakes i've paid people up front i've you know given like continued to give them work when like they aren't making the progress we agreed on like all of these things but it's just something over time that uh you know you eventually get better at i've had to learn it way too many times though JP, can you just give us a breakdown real quick on the numbers on this flip as to the purchase price, what the rehab costs were, and then what you ended up selling it for? Yeah, so I ended up purchasing the project from Aaron and his partner for 112000 and then the rehab ended up costing 54000 and the ARV on it was two thirty, and currently under contract at two thirty seven with some concessions, so... That's awesome. Congratulations. Um, and you, I think you had mentioned before your rehab budget had been 40 to 55. So you were right on target there. Yeah, definitely. It was trying to pinpoint around that 50K mark. But after a couple like hiccups throughout the project, um, they ripped out a shower pan and there was damage to the wood and everything underneath. So ended up costing about 54000 now, Aaron, uh, since you sold this deal to JP, I'm assuming you wholesaled it. What did you lock the deal up for and what did you get for your assignment fee? So I believe we um, locked it up at like 86.5 and then we sold it to JP for um, 112. And obviously JP isn't mad that you got it, you bought it for less and you made money off of it because I'm sure the value he got from that deal, from you mentoring him was way more than what you made in your assignment fee. And also JP made money too, and he learned a lot. So I think that just shows the great power of, you know, networking or even finding a mentor as to there's ways that that kind of relationship can benefit you both. Yeah, definitely. I didn't care at all that Aaron and them were making an assignment fee on it. And he actually was willing to be like a private money lender on it. So he lent 15K to cover the cash to close on the project. And 
he mentioned that before we closed on it and i was like okay this guy's like willing to put money where his mouth is he like means what he says so thought that was really cool so I, I just want to I want to circle back right because the way that you guys uh, kind of came together was that uh, Aaron you you basically gave JP some guidance on this next deal so um, I I just want to kind of talk about um, as you guys have been working together some of the the changes that you guys have made so we've already talked a little bit about some of those things right um, but Aaron what's the biggest thing that you've passed off to JP when it comes to um, timeline specifically yeah so um, I mean I think the biggest thing is like having that conversation up front with your contractors, um, but also like, especially, especially in this current market where thing, things are changing, they're changing really quickly. Um, we're not jumping into projects unless we can be in and out in 60 to 90 days. So we're trying to like game the system where like the market can change quick enough because we're gonna be in and out. So that's one big thing. So um, like timeline, it's like making sure we're super clear on that um, as far as what we're jumping into. So. And that was something that we we talked about with with the contractor we used of, you know, he's like, yeah, it's going to take four weeks. And, you know, I'd known his work well enough. And honestly, I'd side conversations with him like, hey, like his project's a priority. Like mine are fine, whatever. But like, I honestly was like more invested in like him being successful with this than like my own flips. So I'm like calling the contractor like, hey, are you knocking this project out? Like, and like, I'm like, JP, is he making progress like we talked about? Um so I was kind of involved behind the scenes of like, like I like really want this to work. So that was one thing. But yeah, the biggest thing right now is just like making sure you're not jumping into something big um, and kind of staying entry level price point. And then how quick can I get out of it? 60, 90 days. It's going to be something past that. Like it's a good project for someone else. Sorry, just just one clarifying question. When you say sixty to ninety days, are you talking about like close to close? So from the time that you close on it on the purchase until the time you close on it to the sale, or just your rehab portion? Uh, so I want to have it listed in that time. Ideally, I mean close to close, but mm -hmm. it doesn't always happen. Um, which I think JP can talk about this, but I think we were right. Like his was right at. 60 days yeah well yeah i guess jp let's yeah let, let, let's go to yeah. that jp right like how how does the timeline on this new project kind of compare to um the the first deals and how did timelines kind of impact that yeah so it's like a substantial difference the first ones uh, initially got into them and was like okay these contractors told me they could be done within like eight to 12 weeks and then we factored for like six months and after all the issues like it took like a year and three months for the first one a year and like six months for the other one and like a year and nine months for the other so those all took way longer than it was supposed to and then this one the contractor said once he starts work he'll be done in like four to five weeks and uh, this one had a seller lease back on it but once the seller got out he started the first week of january and he was done by like second week of february so just at five weeks that is a big difference so i was doubting whenever he said the four to five weeks and i was like okay i'm factoring for like six months of holding costs and everything <laughs> and okay he told me five weeks so i'm factoring in for double that and maybe a little more and it's just like okay i was super hesitant but definitely shocked whenever it was like dang this went how it was supposed to yeah and i'll, I'll jump in there too that he's kind of leaving out some of the, the story with this seller uh which he, I mean, JP's been great and really trusted us, uh, which I really appreciate. I mean, so this seller, like the house, the lot, it was on like one, it's a mobile home, on like 1.2 acres. It was like a junkyard. Like he walks us through the house and is picking up car parts and telling us like, I don't keep my money in banks. I keep it in car parts. 
So, <laughs> I mean, it was like one of those, I was like, as soon as we closed this, I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to, we just sold him this house. We're going to have to help him evict this guy. Like it was not like the smoothest, easiest beginning. And the guy's like literally like, I mean, JP can go into details on like what was on the property, but it was like an absurd number of like cars, tires, parts. Like it wasn't like a super smooth sailing, but it, you know, we got there. JP, did you end up having to evict the person or did they move out on their own? No, they ended up moving out on their own. We did that seller lease back and uh, I was glad I held like 5K, which covered about three months of hard money cost. And I think the seller lease back initially was for like a week. And then uh, he ended up taking about a month of like kind of following up with him, reiterating. And he was like, oh, I'll be out in two days another two days, then five days, then a week. Then after a whole month, he was out and I was like, oh, okay, cool. He actually got out. So. And did he take his investments with him or did he leave them? <laughs> so <laughs> he ended up taking like three or four cars with him and not even joking. Whenever we were cleaning up the lot, there was like 19 junk cars left on the property oh that God. we had to have hauled off. Can I just ask, what was the cost to like clear all the all the trash from the yard because that's a big you said it was a little over an acre right just filled with cars and car parts what did that cost yeah so we ended up i ended up posting a lot on like facebook free tires free cars there was a (laughs) there was a pile of tires in the back that had 350 tires too but nonetheless uh i found a guy that was willing to come pick up the cars and i guess he got like cash for metal so he was like hey man i'll pick them up for free and he ended up being a really nice guy was actually like trustworthy he said i'll be out there he was calling me and communicating and he hauled off all 19 cars for free so i was like okay cool i didn't make money off them but i'm glad you did and you helped me out with what i needed done i actually went to my first scrap metal yard last week and i could not believe the organization like this scrap yard was more organized than my own life like any piece of scrap was like categorized. So all the lawnmowers together, all the cars were together, all the dishwashers were together, all the fridges were together. Like everything was neatly organized into piles and it was crazy, but we had taken a stove. I think it was, um, there and we let you drive like over the, like the, the weighted bridge and they measure you, you go and you dump off your stove in the stove pile and then you drive back over the bridge and then whatever the weight difference is, they cut you a check. So I think we made $8 off of that bridge <laughs> or that stove that, that we got rid of. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Rookies, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. Nope, they've now rolled out proof of income verification. So let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets, but if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for only $1. How great of a deal is that? So visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor to get six months of Rent Ready for only $1. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. So JP, when you had initially done your numbers, did you budget for this? And maybe we can actually kind of go into budgeting as to maybe compare and contrast as to how you were doing your scope of work and budgets before and then how you were doing it under Aaron's mentorship. Yeah, so the budget on this, uh, Aaron and Jason were super helpful. I came up with like the Excel spreadsheet and sent it over to them and Aaron actually sent me like a video follow-up going through my numbers and let me know what he thought was good, what he thought was a little high. And then I communicated to the contractor and kind of got a couple adjustments. And then uh, for the cleanup, I under budgeted. Uh, Whenever the guy was moving out, he said he was gonna take a lot of the cars with him. And I thought it was going to take more than three out of 22. But anyways, uh, that along with like everything else that he left there, just thought he was going to take more than he did. But uh, I budgeted for like one to two dumpsters and it ended up being three plus pan guys to like put stuff in their pickup truck and haul it off. So under budgeted a little bit on that. Uh, but overall, the initial budget was 40 to 55 to 50K. And I put a 5K contingency just because I figured there's going to be a hiccup and uh, there was throughout the project a couple of small things came up so it ended up being like 54k rehab and when you did this new budget what were some things that you did differently than when you budgeted before like did you have a clear scope of work because you implemented you know certain things that Aaron taught you yeah definitely so uh, he gave me the contract that they use on all their projects and like he went out and talk to the seller with me whenever we got to the property and then once we had the house and we were able to start rehab he went out there whenever the contractor came and all three of us went over the whole project and he helped provide guidance on like hey like contractor do this JP like this is why we're doing this and then uh, went through all that so he provided that and then uh, I allowed the contractor to like write me up the scope of work and went over that with Aaron as well and uh, I took his numbers because he gave a majority labor only quote with providing like a few things like electrical outlets and some smaller things but majority labor only so i uh, took those labor only numbers and just estimated all the materials for each item so i was like okay this is definitely manageable i have what the guy's going to pay to do it and i just need to come up with what i need to get that part done so this is how much this is going to cost and that's how i came up with my budget and 
Aaron, I, I want to go to you for kind of this aspect of budgeting or, or the carrying costs. Because we talked about a little bit with contractors, like sometimes it may be better to wait to get the perfect contractor. How did you help JP figure out the piece of carrying costs and just project management overall during that period of doing the, the rehab too? So that's one thing that we um, with contractors always try to get to because like price is one thing, but time's another right so and a lot of times with our contractors like i don't beat them up on price a whole lot it's more like hit the timeline i don't really care about the details um you know because a month saves us you know if you have hard money and 12 percent, you know on you know two hundred thousand dollars like a month saves you two thousand dollars so a lot of that's more um you know where we care more about like the quality and the timeline than specifically the the budget on it but really kind of nailing that down and and getting that timeline and understanding because carrying costs can eat you up like if it you know we can look at it and be like hey you know we bought it at 70 or 75 percent of the after repair value minus repairs but like the difference in that taking two months and 12 months is you know people don't normally factor that in but it's a huge huge um impact to the project there so um we you know really nail down hey like what's a realistic timeline, what can we get it done in, and then, you know, try to factor that into the budget, the carrying costs, all of that. I don't know if that, if that answers the question or not. Yeah. And, and JP, what were some of the things you learned about carrying costs? Yeah, this one, uh, they definitely ate me up on the last three projects, having like three hard money loans at once. So this one felt a lot less risky having one and having someone to guide me on it. So the carrying costs on it ended up being about like sixteen sixty a month. And I've budgeted for about six months worth of it. So since it ended up being like one month of the seller and he basically covered that with his lease and then one month, essentially five weeks of rehab. So now it's only been on the market for 30 days or so. So two months into the whole timeline of actually holding that. So um, definitely learned that like one at a time when you're starting out makes a lot of sense. And this risk was accounted for. Yeah, you got to ease into it a little bit. Um, Aaron, you, you mentioned, you know, 12% on your money and what that what those, uh, the, those monthly carrying costs are. So um, you, you mentioned hard money. Is, is that how you're, you're funding most of your deals? Or, or what was your kind of recommendation to JP on how to best set up the financing for uh, this flip? Yeah, great question. So um, personally, I mean, we use a mix of hard money and private money. And then if we use private money, it's all set up where it just balloons on the back end. So we don't have monthly payments. Um, and honestly, most of our lenders prefer that anyway. Um, with hard money, of course, you're going to have monthly payments with that. Um, but we we um, connected JP with uh, a hard money lender we'd used before because there's a lot of hard money lenders aren't going to touch a mobile home. Um, so we had a specific one who we knew would um, based on you know our relationship with them. Um, there's a lot of courts of mobile homes. Like people don't think they have value. Like everyone's scared of, um, um, all these things. So, so part of that too was like, Hey, let's connect him with this lender that we know will do the deal. Um, and then, you know, someone we'd worked with before, we know their draw process for, you know, once you complete the repairs, like you're paying all that up front, but you got to get that money back. So I think that's the thing with, um, hard money that people will overlook a lot of times too, of like, you know, what points rate is one thing, but um, what is the actual process when you're, when you're in that project of, Hey, how do I, once I've spent my money, how do I get it back? Right. So, 
um, that was one thing that we brought to that of like, hey, we've used these people. We know how they how they work and they're they're good to work with um, and kind of guided him with with that. JP, I think uh, was a big part of this for you, like learning how to be able to sleep at night and not feeling over leverage, having, you know, multiple different pieces of financing and to, to kind of tie it on together. Do you have any examples as to, you know, were these, you know, a thousand dollars a month, uh, your carrying costs that you would have to, you know, take out of your W-2 pay maybe to cover? Was this $10,000 a month that you had to cover for your carrying costs? Can you kind of give us an idea of what that looked like, what those numbers were on your projects? Yeah, on the previous flips or this one? Uh, let's start with the previous ones and then kind of compare it to, to this one. Yeah, so the previous flips, the hard money costs uh, ended up being around like 9000 a month and having that just eat away and those timelines just doubling you can imagine like okay just was not accounted for so i literally was like stressed to the peak and just praying like hey i need help like i don't know what i'm doing like don't know what to do and when that amount hits your bank account it's like okay there's like another month gone of 10k almost and uh, this one it was just like 1600 bucks plus like the electricity and water so 18 1900 bucks a month it's just so much more manageable and uh previously i was just like completely stressed out all the time like waiting for these projects to go like right and waiting for them to be done just trying to get to the finish line and get that weight and debt off my shoulders and were you using any other kind of funding like borrowing money from a friend credit cards or um, was it strictly just that one financing piece, that one loan? Yeah, so got into it by using cash and then raised about like 100K, 130K of private money and had to actually go back to the private lenders to get more money just to finish out the projects. And then uh, that money was used to get into hard money. So had three hard money loans with private money and my own personal cash invested. And then once like we just needed more money to get the projects done, it was credit cards. So basically put everything on credit cards. And I did that initially for like, hey, I want the rewards, right? If the lender's gonna pay me back a draw, then I'll get 3% on 50K, whatever it is. Cool, 1500 bucks. But after I put my credit card out and then got the draws and the rehabs way more than the draws, I just had to hold it on my credit cards. So once it was all said and done, we walked away with like 80K still on credit cards. First of all, $80,000 on credit cards. What was your interest rate or did you have a 0% <laughs> credit card? No. So the interest rate on them was like all around that 25% and it was a mix. Some of the cards were new. Some of the cards had been a couple years old. So the new ones did have that zero interest for a little bit. But at the time of these projects, most of them were, I think it was spread across like nine credit cards because I didn't have an 80K limit on one card. I had like 8K here, 13 here, whatever it was. And uh, I was just paying a ton on interest. I think it was like two to three K in interest. So whenever uh, we paid off the debt on the credit cards, I actually like called each individual credit card company and like asked them if they could remove stuff and let them know I had the cash to pay that off. And we sold a rental property to get the cash to pay that off. And they were actually willing to remove a decent amount of the interest payments that they had racked up and lessen that amount. And then Amex, I signed up for their like financial relief program. So they brought my interest rate down from 25% to I think three or 4%. So 
that was really helpful. Okay, that is so interesting. I don't think we've ever had anyone talk about that before. Um, and thank you for giving that as to like how you handled it. You just didn't go and say, well, now I got this 80K, I'm paying 25% on it because I seriously got severe anxiety and I wanted to throw up for you just thinking about that. But that is awesome as to you looked at different ways to like, okay, how do I mitigate the damage on this? So yeah, thank you for sharing that piece. We've never had anyone talk about that before. Yeah. Two, two follow-up questions for me, JP. Just how, how much total debt, excluding the hard money, but like from the, the credit card, you said about 80K and then another, you said 130. So what is 80 plus 130 is like $210,000 in, in debt, give or take. So you, you had a decent amount. So I guess the follow-up question here is when you, when you realized that the projects weren't going according to plan and you said you had to go back to your private money lenders to ask for more capital, um, I guess were you able to eventually pay them off or did they take a loss when you sold these properties at a loss? Like what was the end result with, you know, these projects kind of going haywire with the budgets? Yeah. So, uh, total debt and then, uh, like how did things work out with the private money lenders? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So total debt was like, once we sold that last project, it's like, okay, this is our actual like debt scenario. And we were trying to figure all that out and things were not organized throughout the whole projects obviously since they completely went wrong and there was about 80k of credit card debt private lenders did that 130 initially but had to go back for them for more throughout the projects to cover things so ended up being one gave us 160 and the other one gave us 90 and then had like two others that amounted to like another 20 or so k of debt so all of that was private money and then uh, I had the 80K of credit card debt. So that was the total amounts. And then how things worked out was I had to approach them for more money throughout the project. So I was just like, hey, this is a scenario. Like we have these payments coming up that are gonna cost us to foreclose on these. So we need more money. And it was just like really hard conversations to have, but was trying to do it all with integrity. And we'd gotten screwed over by a lot of contractors, but I was just like, okay, I'm not gonna let that affect my character. And I don't wanna lie to these people that are trusting us with their money. So just like was being clean about the whole thing and talked to them about that. And they understood the situation. They looked at our numbers and everything and they were willing to lend on it still and give us more money for the rehab. And then from there, like ended up taking longer too and more money. But once we closed everything out, uh, those lenders were partially paid back from a second lien on one of the properties. And then the rest of it, they were just gonna take as a loss. And it was to the LLC that I'd created. So I could have just said like, hey, sorry, we lost all this money and like better luck next time, you know? But instead, I was like, no, that's not how we want to do things. Like, I, you lented me your money and you entrusted me with it and I want to pay you back. So I uh, ended up working out payments over time with them and plan on selling another that house that I house hacked. I plan on selling that in the summer and then that should net a decent amount that I can like hopefully get a big principal payment paid off to them. So I, j- I just want to make sure I'm following. So um, when you when you finish the actual flips, obviously those sold at a loss. So what you said is, hey, private money lender, I'm going to keep this note open with you for whatever I still owe you. So like basically right now you have like an unsecured debt with those people and your plan is to continue to pay them back until they're made whole on that original investment. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Right. Yes. Uh, created like new promissory notes for remaining balances and 
extended timelines and amounts that were paid monthly and reset everything and then started making payments going forward from there. I'm still hung up on uh, finding out about this Emacs financial relief program because I might rack up some credit card debt because my line of credits are towing that 9% edge and that 4 to 5% sounds pretty good. Yeah. So it's like a one-year program. And uh, I think I was holding like, and these eight to nine credit cards were a mix of like mine and my wife's. So I signed us both up for it. And hers had like 20K on her Amex, pretty high limit. And then uh, mine had 9K and uh, we signed up the financial relief program. So got those down to 4% on both of those. Wow, that's, a, that's really interesting. And I'm definitely not recommending anyone, you know, get credit card <laughs> debt for sure. Definitely not. But if you do have yourself in a situation, I'm definitely some, something to look into. Okay, so I guess what is the outcome of this last flip? Where did it go? Yeah, so uh, this last flip, it's currently under contract and it got listed basically like a week after the rehab was finished with pictures and cleaning and such needing to be done and sat on the market for about 30 days and it took a couple weeks to become FHA eligible, but this past weekend uh, just got an FHA offer on it. So it's currently under contract. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what to kind of tie it all together, Erin, what were some of the things that you uh, helped JP with as far as listing the unit and get it ready for market? Were there some things that you felt were valuable that he learned um, compared to the last flips that he did? I, mean, I guess kind of just our overall philosophy on listing stuff right now is um, like past comps don't really matter. Like we're pretty much looking at what's on the market and what's active. Um, and we're trying to have, you know, better amenities, better finishes and cheaper price than anything out there. Cause, um, there's, there's a lot of inventory and buyers are pickier than I've ever seen them. So that's one thing that, um, we do that I kind of talked to JP about is, Hey, you got, you kind of have one shot right now. Like we got to be aggressive with listing this. Like you, this is not the time to try to push values. Um, it's the time to you know, get it at a price point where it really makes a lot of sense and you get a lot of eyes on it. Um, and then the other thing too, um, just kind of our rule of thumb is uh, if, so it's not FHA eligible, eligible until you hit 90 days. Um, to me, it's like awesome if you finish a project before it's eligible because you're like, hey, we just crushed it. But at the same time, um, our rule of thumb on that is we don't, we don't price drop until it's FHA eligible. So if it sits for two or three weeks, like they're, and no one buys it cash or conventional, like there may just be people that want the house, but it's not FHA eligible before it. And we've had scenarios with that where, you know, on that like 90, 91 day mark, we get like three offers because all these people liked it, but they couldn't buy it yet. So that's just one thing, um, how we can approach listings. And if they're not eligible for FHA, like, especially right now, it seems like we're getting a lot of FHA buyers on both mobile homes and, you know, normal single family homes. Um, But yeah, so we just make sure that we at least write out that period before we do any sort of price drop or reduction or anything like that. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and, and sharing this incredible journey of you guys matchmaking and making this deal work for JP. It's been really cool to compare and contrast, um, even though it you know, obviously really sucks JP about your first flips as to, you know, how they didn't work out exactly as you wanted, but it is amazing to see the transformation as you as an investor and how you kept going and you didn't give up and you found somebody 
that could help you, you know, figure it out. So thank you guys so much for coming on and sharing. I, I really appreciate it. I, I just wanted to add like, like JP, just major kudos to you, man, because mm-hmm. talk about like mental fortitude and perseverance and, and grit. I think if, if the average person got started in real estate investing the way that you did with, you know, the, these experiences that feel like these massive failures, um, I think most people would have stopped. Right, they they just kind of would have looked their wounds and said, "Real estate investing is not for me." And we've interviewed people on in the podcast who took like years and years after that first failed uh, uh, attempt at real estate investing before they got back into the game. So, brother, the fact that you were able to kind of keep your head high and, and move forward with with confidence and and with grace, it, it just speaks volumes to who you are as a person, man. So, I just I want to congratulate you on that. Thanks, really appreciate those kind words. Uh, it was definitely a process, like absorbing all those losses and coming into that like just the mental hit it takes on you and basically took like six months between that last flip and getting into this one with Aaron or I guess eight months but yeah in between there was just figuring things out working as a real estate agent and uh, that hit basically I've just summed it up into a 250k education that I didn't know I was gonna want you know and didn't want but definitely would have spent that 250k differently and uh, failure is a part of learning, right? So it'll be a cool story to tell my kids one day when I've built a cool company. That's an MBA in real estate investing right there, man. You got like a, <laughs> yeah. a world-class education. Yeah, definitely. So, Well, JP, where can people reach out to you and find out some more information about you? Uh, they can reach out to me on Instagram at jpdesmit97. And Aaron, thank you so much uh, for coming in and, and giving your advice and letting everyone else uh, get value out of the lessons that you helped uh, teach JP. But where can everybody can reach out to you and find out some more information? Yeah, the best place is probably Instagram. It's just my first name, dot last name. So Aaron.Beal. And uh, I'm pretty responsive there. So hit me up if uh, I can do anything to help. Okay, awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Tony, what a great episode. This is the first, one of the first times that we've really had a mentor-mentee program. I think in one of the first maybe 20 episodes of Real Estate Rookie, we had Ryan Dossie on and we did kind of a, a mentor thing, but um, I definitely haven't had this kind of setup before on the podcast, but I really liked it. Uh, definitely a, an interesting relationship when you kind of tie in all the components of how they work together. And it was it was just such an interesting story. I mean, mm-hmm. JP, talk about like just having you know I don't know nerves of steel to to kind of keep going through even even when things get tough. Um, but it, it I think it just goes to show Ashley how much good mentorship can save a new investor from um, so much headache, and it it can really kind of shorten the learning curve when you have someone who's made the mistakes already and can stop you before you jump off into the deep end and, and, and follow in those same same footsteps. So, I mean, it's it's night and day between the first flips that JP did versus the one that he did um, th- this uh, this more recent time with Aaron. Yeah, I think um, they didn't really talk about this till the end, but I really liked how it showed they both had advantages to this relationship. So it wasn't even just the mentor piece, but they were both making money off of this deal, which I thought was really interesting. And JP had said it as to, 
you know, Aaron kind of put his money where his mouth was by putting up 15K to help cover some of the cost of the the project. I think it was maybe towards the closing cost or something like that. But um, I think if you're looking to mentor with someone, go back and re-listen to this episode and really take away some of those key points as to how their mentorship worked so well. Um, Because you can pay someone to be your mentor. And JP basically did that, but through a deal (laughs) and not just here's, you know, no matter how the deal ends up, here's $5,000 a month for you to be my coach and my mentor. Yeah, it was it was a really, like you said, I think kind of win-win situation for both of them. And I think another big takeaway that I liked, Ash, was uh, the talk about the contractors. And you and I have, have talked about this before, right? Like, you know, how do you find the right contractor? How do you pay the contractor the right way? And I thought Aaron had a really interesting point where he said, I don't go to Facebook groups. I don't go on Craigslist, but he's going to places where uh, good contractors congregate in person. And that's where he's kind of finding his folks. And he didn't even say like Home Depot. I think he said like the local paint shop is where he goes. I'm like, huh, you know, that's that's an interesting take on it. But it, it's kind of counter to what you hear from a lot of folks um, about where they where they go to find their contractors. Yeah, all in all, great episode. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed it too. So if you love this episode, please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, and then I also want to give a social media shout out. We've been doing these a little bit now. And this week, I wanted to shout out at Rosenberg Steve. So he is a friend of mine that actually started out as my mentor. <laughs> uh, it's been probably three years ago now since I first uh, slid into Steve's DMs and he became my mentor and really has just changed my life. He posts all about building your business, uh, you know, systems and processes, uh, and not even just real estate specific, uh, a lot of businesses in general, uh, he tends to help, but also a lot of mindset stuff too. So I want to challenge you guys to give him a follow. He also had something extremely tragic happen to him personally that he's been sharing on social media. And I think just the things he's trying to learn for himself, but also preach to others because of this tragedy, I think will have an impact on us all. Um, so Steve recently did this post and it, it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, kind of statement here. Strength does not come from winning. Your struggles develop your strengths. When you go through hardships and decide not to surrender, that is strength. And I know Steve is probably feeling <laughs> this quote um, right now, but I want you guys to go and just take a look at his story and, you know, what he's going through right now. And he is such a master at looking at something and figuring out how he can impact others so that they come out better than, you know, what has happened to him and how he's feeling. So uh, that's our our social media share of the day. We got to have like a a name for this segment, I guess. Yeah, no, we got to come up with something catchy. So then like slide into this person. Here's the, the Instagram the account. You're going to slide into their DMs yeah. this week. <laughs> and as always, you can find Tony on Instagram at Tony J. Robinson. And you can find me at Wealth From Rentals. And we will be back on Saturday with a rookie reply.
Getting started in real estate can be daunting. There's so much to know, obstacles to overcome, lessons to learn, and risks to avoid. It can all be so overwhelming. If you're feeling motivated to invest, but too overwhelmed to take action, here's some advice. Take it one step at a time. And here's some good news for you. The Rookie Bootcamp is starting on May 20th, and Tyler and Ashley will be guiding you through each and every step until you're the proud, confident owner of your first investment property. Through eight action-packed weeks, they'll guide you step-by-step through those first questions, decisions, and obstacles that every beginner investor must overcome. So if you're serious about becoming an investor this year, head to biggerpockets.com step and join us in the Rookie Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.